Well, let's continue in our time of worship by opening God's Word together. So if you have your Bible, will you grab that and go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you're uh, worshiping with us this morning and you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You'll find some Bibles on those tables in the back of the room, and you can take one now or on your way out of worship today. That's our gift to you. Uh, Our full text this morning that I'm going to read to get us started is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. If you're willing and able, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16. Do listen carefully to these words which the Apostle Peter wrote for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit long ago. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy. For I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. For many weeks now, we have been in this series on Sunday mornings called Deathly Devices. We've been looking at, thinking about the so-called seven deadly sins, better called, I think, the seven capital vices. And each week, we've taken one of those vices and put it under the microscope. Asking certain questions of it. First, what is this vice precisely? Second, how do our devices incite or awaken this vice within our own hearts? And then third and finally, what spiritual practices will counter its power? So in many ways, this has been a series on technology. It's been a fairly unusual series. In fact, I had somebody ask me that question this past week. Do most series look like this? No, really they don't. Typically around here we just preach straight through a book of the Bible. We just came out of a long study going straight through the Gospel of Luke, and that's pretty, pretty normal. So this is a bit of an abnormal series, but it seemed like an important topic for us to consider together and learn to think Christianly about technology, or to put it this way, to think about technology within the larger context of spiritual formation we need to see that our devices possess the power to deform us. Seeing that is the first step toward stopping it. So we've covered five of these vices. I want to do just a quick recap this morning showing you where we've been. Back in week one, we looked at the vice of vainglory. And we learned that vainglory is what we call the AAA vice. The vainglorious person craves attention, affirmation, applause. His obsession is recognition, for her image is everything. Whatever virtue we possess, we want it to go viral. All attention on us, that's vainglory. Secondly, we learn that envy is feeling bitter when others have it better. The envious person grieves over another's good gifts because they seem superior to his or her own. Envy's eye surveys the world seeing the excellence of others as a personal insult. It's all about comparison, comparison, comparison. Third, we looked at sloth. And though at first sloth may seem like a pretty minor matter, we actually learned that sloth cannot be considered the lightweight of the capital vices because it violates the heaviest or the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. Rightly understood, sloth is spiritual apathy. 
spiritual apathy, a refusal to use the resources God has given us, laziness with respect to the love to which he's called us. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And then there was avarice two weeks ago. Avarice is the desire to acquire more and more and more for ourselves. The avaricious person chases creature comforts thinking that they will satisfy his deepest desires. She's consumed, consumed by the quest for wealth, possessed by the thought of more possessions. If I could just get more, then I would have the good life, then I would finally be happy. That's avarice. And then last week, last week we needed to make a distinction between righteous anger and sinful anger. Because not all anger is sinful. And so we learned that righteous anger is slow to develop. How you been doing with that this past week? Slow to develop and quick to forgive. How you been doing with that one? Most notably, righteous anger trusts God for ultimate justice. Sinful anger, on the other hand, or wrath, it battles God for jurisdiction. The wrathful person refuses to let God run the universe, instead insisting that he decides what happens to others, especially to those who have wronged him. So there they are, the first five. That's where we've been. That brings us to where we are today. The sixth vice, gluttony. Gluttony. Now my guess is, if I were a betting man, I would bet that for those of you who have been in church for decades, you've probably never heard a single sermon on gluttony. Right? In fact, I was talking to my boys this morning on the way to church, and Cullen, my youngest son, asked me, what's the vice for the day? And I said, gluttony. He said, I don't even know what that is. Don't even know what it means. <laughs> Fair enough. We're going to talk about it. Let's start with a simple definition. But I'm going to expand this definition as we go. I'm going to expand it as we go. So what is gluttony? Well, gluttony is a vice of excess. That's the key. Gluttony is a vice of excess. Normally, it refers to an excess related to our eating. Excessive portions of food, that would be the problem of quantity. Or excessive pleasure derived from fine foods, expensive foods, that would be the problem of quality. The glutton might be an overeater or a highly selective eater, a food snob. Either way, the glutton hopes food will accomplish something that no creature comfort can. When feelings of emptiness threaten, the glutton reaches for the quick fix of chocolate, fine wine, big bowl of mac and cheese, decadent meal out. The glutton reaches for those things rather than reaching for resources that actually can satisfy our deepest longings. The soul is longing for something. The soul is starving, and the glutton gorges the gut. Problem not solved. Problem not solved. Now, it's important to understand here, when we're talking about gluttony and its traditional definition, we're not talking about food and drink being evil or bad in any way. In fact, there are only three places in the Gospels where we find the phrase, the Son of Man came, and then an explanation of why Jesus came. Only three times does that phrase occur. I'm going to show them to you. The first one is in Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came, why? Not to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I bet those two you're familiar with. The third one, on the other hand, maybe not. Matthew 11.19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. How about that? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Jesus spent so much time fellowshipping with sinners and tax collectors that his most vehement critics accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Wrongly accused him. Jesus turned water into wine. Good wine. Jesus took a small amount of food and turned it into a massive amount of food, large enough to feed a colossal crowd. When the resurrected Jesus first appears to his disciples, one of the first things he does is have a snack. He eats fish in their presence. So you see, there's nothing evil, there's nothing inherently wrong with food or with drink. The issue is excess. The issue is excess. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's definition of the virtue temperance, which he defines as going the right length and no further. Going the right length and no further. Now, going the right length means having the right amount of food, yes. But at the root of overeating, it also means not putting too much hope in food. Not putting too much hope in drink, in any creature comfort, not looking to these things to satisfy us in the deepest way possible or with finality. It has to do with excess. Now that's gluttony as it's been traditionally defined. This morning I want to expand the definition. I want to expand it in this way. Gluttony is a vice of excess. Normally it's an excess related to food, though it can also pertain to a different diet, our diet of information. You might not be aware of this, but Scripture speaks frequently about the mind. The Bible seems to care a lot about the types of things we're putting into our minds, how our minds are feasting, if you will, and how we're applying our minds. I want to give you a couple of examples. We don't have time to get into all the details of these passages this morning, but simply reading them will give you a general idea of the emphasis the Bible places on the mind. Look at these passages. You'll know this one because we looked at it already in this series. Matthew 22, a lawyer comes to Jesus to test him. He asks a question, Teacher, which of these is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Love the Lord your God with your mind. Here's the second example. The Apostle Paul, writing in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul goes on to say in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. He's calling us to direct our thoughts. Thinking this direction, don't think in that direction. 
dwell on these types of things. Don't dwell on those types of things. And here's one more. First Peter, the passage I read earlier. The Apostle Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, just a couple of observations from this passage. Again, we can't spend a whole lot of time on it, but I want you to see a few things here. The ESV is a bit loose with its translation of this first part, preparing your minds for action. A literal translation of the Greek text there is, gird up the loins of your mind. What the heck does that mean? Gird up the loins of your mind. In the ancient world, men wore long shirts, almost like a robe. These shirts would have come down below their knees. So if they were going to run, if they were going to engage in a battle, they had to gird up their loins, meaning they had to take that long robe and tuck it into their belt so that they could become more agile, so that they could fight or do whatever they needed to do. And a modern-day equivalent would be something like roll up the sleeves of your mind. Roll up the sleeves of your mind. It's a call for mental fitness, mental toughness. Get ready to use your mind. And then notice that Peter adds to this. He supplements it with a call for mental sobriety. Gird up the loins of your mind and being sober-minded. sober minded. Peter cautions us. We must be careful about drinking things into our minds that cause us to lose our perception of spiritual realities. The Bible cares deeply, frequently, about your mind. What you're drinking into it. What you're feasting on mentally and how you're applying it. So, how is your mental diet? Are you a glutton, an information glutton? It's never been easier to become an information glutton with our devices. So let's think about that for just a moment. There are two books at the top of the list when families and individuals come to me, hey, what should I read to help me think Christianly about technology? I've got kids, I've got grandkids, I'd like to better understand this from a Christian perspective. There are two books I always recommend. The first one is called The TechWise Family by Andy Crouch. Little orange book. We probably have some copies at the Connection Center. We used to. They might have all been taken during this series. The second book is called The Wisdom Pyramid by Brett McCracken. A couple of our connection groups have read and discussed this book in recent semesters. Brett McCracken opens his book, The Wisdom Pyramid, by commenting on excess, gluttony. Here's what he says. Our world has more and more information but less and less wisdom. More data, less clarity. More stimulation, less synthesis. More distraction, less stillness. More pontificating, less pondering. More opinion, less research. More speaking, less listening. More to look at, less to see. More amusements, less joy. There is more, but we are less. And we all feel it. We all feel it. McCracken rightly says that in this internet age, really nothing better characterizes this age than information overload. In this age of information overload, we need better diets. 
We need to be more discerning with what we consume mentally. He points out three common problems. Three, we could call them harmful habits of informational eating. Let's think about each of these briefly. The first one, he says, is eating too much. Eating too much. Like I said already, never have we had so much information at our fingertips. Here's an example of what I mean. In 2019, a single minute on the internet, one minute, saw the transmission of 188 million emails, over 18 million texts, and over 4 million videos viewed on YouTube. By 2020, there were 40 times more bytes of data on the internet than there are stars in the observable universe. Wow. Our phones... That little device you carry around with you in your pocket everywhere you go. Our phones, now, they're libraries. Universities. Universes. That's how much information is available at our fingertips. Now, in theory, that sounds like a good thing, but in practice, it often is not. Just as too much food makes the body feel sick, too much information makes the soul feel sick. The internet is like this limitless buffet. This limitless buffet. So how in the world do we choose? With all of this information available, how do we choose what to read, who to listen to? We're just at this limitless buffet. Now the word limitless is important. Because what that means is now, news channels, news sources, they're faced with a new problem. Suddenly, they need to fill in this limitless space. They need 24 hours a day, seven days a week of content, right? And the result has been a significant downgrade in what's considered newsworthy content. It's the problem of, problem of a limitless space. We're all eating too much, often without realizing it. A second problem that McCracken points out is that we're eating too fast. We're eating too fast. Generally speaking... Fast food is not the most nutritional, right? In fact, as one author uh, puts it, if your food comes in a wrapper, it's better to just eat the wrapper. <laughs> There's probably more nutritional benefits there. Just toss the food, eat the wrapper, he says. Faster is not better. Faster is not better. If you live your life online... You're playing a lifelong game of catch-up. I've got to read that article that everybody's referencing. I've got to respond to those emails and those text messages before the person who sent them gets angry that I don't live by their schedule. I've got to comment on this latest social media outrage before I lose my status as a thought leader. There's just too much information, and we're reading it too fast. We're skimming it. That sort of environment... It doesn't create within us the ability to think carefully and critically. It's not helpful. Faster isn't better. One more that McCracken points out is that we're eating only what tastes good to us. <laughs> Look, talking about food, if most of us ate only what tastes good to us, we would be sick or we would be dead. Right? We would be sick or we would be dead. And yet we do that online. If you go to just your favorite online haunts, 
for all of your information, understand that's no different than eating a steady diet of candy, candy canes, candy corns, and syrup. Who are you, Buddy the Elf? Have an apple. Have a salad. Diversify the voices you listen to. Listen to a well-researched podcast. Read a well-articulated book-length argument. Don't just go to your favorite online haunts to get all of your information. So here they are, the three harmful habits of informational eating. Eating too much, eating too fast, and eating only what tastes good to me. Now maybe you hear that and you think, ah, come on. Is it really that harmful? Informational eating, informational gluttony, is it really that harmful? It really is. It really is. Study after study has shown that a diet like this, information gluttony, causes high amounts of stress and anxiety in every age, every demographic. Here's McCracken again. We burden ourselves with massive amounts of unnecessary and often troubling knowledge. When we're physically sick, we search WebMD to find answers and usually only find more to worry about. As if our own struggles and family complexities were not emotionally burdensome enough, our Instagram and Facebook feeds pull us into the pleas, rants, and emotional vortexes of hundreds of others throughout the day. The constant news notifications of Amber Alerts, deadly tornadoes, measles, outbreaks, school shootings, suspicious activity in our neighborhoods thanks to apps like Nextdoor, and all manner of horrific crime headlines accumulate in our consciousness, burdening our brains with anxiety about the mounting number of ways the world can kill us. If you don't think your informational diet is affecting you, you're wrong. You're wrong. And it's not just the amount of information that's out there. It's also that there is much misinformation and disinformation. Misinformation is the larger category referring to things that are just flat out wrong, but not speaking necessarily to the intention of the creator or sharer. Disinformation is a subset of misinformation, speaking to the intent of the creator or the sharer. There's an intent to deceive. The Internet is a natural habitat for both. Both misinformation and disinformation. Why? Why is it a natural habitat? Well, for starters, online... There are no gatekeepers. Think about this for a minute. The large majority of information you encounter online has not had to pass the muster of gatekeepers. If a person wants to publish a book, for example, a traditional book, what do they do? Well, it usually starts with a book proposal. You send it to a publisher. If the publisher finds merit in the project, they agree to publish it. And then the, the author goes to work, researching, writing for months, sometimes years. And then at the end of that, the author submits the manuscript to editors. Editors. And only after careful editing, usually many rounds of revision, only then does that book go to the public. It works similarly with any type of traditional publishing of journal articles, periodicals like magazines. If it's a more academic article written by even a scholar, it has to go to other scholars for what's called a peer review process. Other people weigh in on it saying either, yeah, good or no, can it, 
before it ever goes to the public. Same with popular level stuff. Take a well-known Christian magazine like Christianity Today. How does an article wind up there? The author writes it, but it has to pass the muster of the editor. Let's say an editor decides, yeah, I'd like you to write a piece, but then the piece is submitted and it's no good. It's inaccurate. It's found wanting in some way. What happens then? The author gets a kill fee and the world never sees that article. It's canned. It never makes it to the public. Gatekeepers galore. Now consider the process a person goes through to publish online. A guy grabs his phone, hops on social media, starts typing. A woman learns how to use WordPress, starts a blog, starts typing. A person grabs a camera of some sort, starts a YouTube channel, starts creating content. No gatekeepers. No gatekeepers. That's a problem. Sure, it's faster. It's way faster to publish on the internet, but faster isn't better. Faster isn't better. That's one problem. Now, here's another one, more from our side. It's nearly impossible to fact check. It's nearly impossible to fact check. Think of yourself as a goalie. You're playing soccer. You're there to block the penalty kicks. But now, all of a sudden, dozens of penalty kicks are coming at you and all at once. Good luck. There's too many of them. They're coming so swiftly. There's no way you can catch, in this context, catch all the wrong information. There's just too much of it out there. And to further complicate matters, the misinformation travels fastest and farthest online. Let me say that again. The misinformation travels fastest and farthest online. There was a team of MIT researchers who studied this a while back, a 2018 study. They found that false news stories are 70% more likely to be retweeted than true stories are. 70%. It also takes true stories about six times as long to reach 1,500 people as it does for false stories to reach the same number of people. In other words, lies can travel around the world before the truth has ever laced up its shoes. Now, why is that? Why is it that falsehood spreads so much faster, so much farther? Well, according to these MIT researchers, the answer is us. We value what's new. We value what's new. And most fake news is novel stuff. So that's why we're so quick to read it. That's why we're so quick to share it. If you're on social media, and especially if you want to have influence on social media, it's all about being the first to share something, being the first to report on it, right? Who cares if it's good, bad, or ugly? Never mind if it's true or false. What matters is that I'm first. I'm the first to share it. And that's why, according to these researchers, falsehood travels much faster online than truth. So we have all of this information and we have massive amounts of misinformation and disinformation. What should we do? We must curb our informational diets. We need to learn to be more discerning when it comes to our informational consumption. How do we do so? We'll close with this. We do so by eating according to the wisdom pyramid. 
I want to end on this. You've seen this before if you've been at Faith Church for any number of years. And I know you won't be able to read these captions. Don't worry about that. I just want you to see the image. And I'm going to unpack it for us. This is from the book I mentioned earlier, Brett McCracken's The Wisdom Pyramid. He argues that these are our six sources of eating, our six sources of wisdom. Starting at the bottom, playing off the old food, food pyramid here. The bottom level, the largest, is our foundation. The foundation, of course, is the Bible. God's Word. We need God's Word on a daily basis. When you're talking about God's Word, you never have to worry about misinformation or disinformation. There is no falsehood there. There's only truth because God is truth. And this is His Word given to us through the prophets and the apostles preserved for the church throughout the centuries. It's truth. This is the foundation of our informational diet. And the thing about God's Word is it gives you more than information. It gives you everything you need for transformation. It gives you everything you need to become a new person, a new creation, a person who loves your family in a different way, a better way, loves your vocation, performs at your vocation in a different way, a better way. It will transform you, not just give you information. So that's the foundation, the Bible. Now, secondly, the second source, McCracken says, is the church. We need each other. And we're better readers of Scripture when we read together. When you join one of our connection groups, quick plug here, by the way, we've got a new men's group this summer. Brian Eide is going to be leading it. You can sign up for it on our website today for men who are looking for a small group over the summer. But when you get in one of those connection groups and you're reading together and thinking together, you're better together. You're growing in wisdom together. Confessing our sins. Caring for each other. We need the church, the community of Christ followers. The third source, McCracken says, is nature or creation. One of the best things we can do to help fight against this informational gluttony problem is get outside. Leave the device inside. Go outside. Look at those green things. They're called trees. <laughs> Enjoy them. Listen to that sound. It's called birds. When we are only on our devices, it's very easy for us to become prideful. Look at all this information I have. Look at everything I know. Look at who I am. When you get outside and it's just you in creation, you're reminded of your smallness. Creation doesn't ask for your opinion. When was the last time the weather asked what you cared? We're reminded of our smallness, and yet at the same time, there's something comforting about nature. Why is that? It's because when we're in creation, we're more mindful of the fact that that's what we are. We are a creature. We feel closer to our creator there among the rest of his creation. So we need that third source, the Bible, the church, nature. The fourth source is books. The Bible is the book of books, but we also need books. We talked about this a little bit last week. Books help us become better thinkers, more careful, cautious, critical thinkers. Reading a book also is an exercise in learning to tame the tongue. To read a book is to be slow to speak, Slow to anger, 
but quick to listen. Quick to listen. Now, moving toward the top here, two to go. The fifth level, he calls beauty. Beauty, and by beauty he means art, creativity, things like music. Music helps us feel the glory, the power, the greatness of God, right? The songs we sang together this morning, can you just sense the greatness of God in that? God's the creator of beauty. So beauty must be a part of our diet. And then lastly... At the very top of the pyramid, the use sparingly portion of our diet is technology. And specifically, he says, the internet and social media. Now, notice that it is part of the pyramid. Brett McCracken is not arguing, nor am I arguing in this series, that we should just get rid of technology altogether. We should use it without abusing it. We should use it carefully, purposefully. So here's a good example. When you go online, ask yourself, what am I going online to do? Is there a goal? Is there a purpose? If you just hop online without a goal, without a purpose, you'll go anywhere. And the anywheres of the internet are not good for us. So use it purposefully. Now here's the problem in closing. The problem, McCracken says, is that in most households, we have flipped the pyramid. We flipped it with technology occupying the foundation and God's word occupying the use sparingly portion. And the result is more and more information, more and more misinformation, and we're missing out on the transformation God intends for us. So I'll leave you with that verse from 1 Peter, the verse with which we began. Therefore, Preparing your minds for action. Being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the internet age, there are many people with fit bodies and fat minds. Maybe it's time to sober up. Maybe it's time for a new informational diet. Today's a good day to start. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We do so deeply desire for your word to be the foundation of our diets. We know that we need your word daily. God, we cannot live without you. We cannot live apart from you. So for those of us who need to make some adjustments today, We're experiencing conviction this morning because we realize that our informational diet is just all out of order. We have flipped that pyramid. We're online all the time. And we're hardly ever spending time with you and your word and in prayer. We're not prioritizing the church. Heck, we never even go outside. We need to make some adjustments. I pray, God, this morning that as we're feeling this conviction that it won't stop there, that that will be where it begins. And that now by the power of your Spirit within us, we will make these adjustments. Starting with ourselves, having conversations with our spouses, setting some new boundaries for our children. Our minds matter to you, God. We see that. 
So we ask for your help. We ask for your help. Help us to feast on your word. And now as we come to feast at your table, oh God, remind us of that wonderful and beautiful truth of the gospel that sinners like us have hope. Even when our priorities have been all out of order, God, even when we have turned away from you, your arms are always wide open. You teach us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So we confess our failures to you this morning, God. And we come to your table remembering the blood of Jesus, his sacrifice for our sins, the good news of grace. In his name we pray, amen.